0: Okay, we are back in for a special edition of the Biblia takes podcast. As always, uh, myself, Paul, and my co-host Cody are here bringing you the hottest takes from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And in this special edition, we're bringing on my favorite person in this entire world Thank for the you. second time, my absolutely exquisite Tolkien scholar mom. <laughs> mom, how's it going? It's going great.
1: Room To grow in that Tolkien scholar thing, though, room to grow. Oh, yeah, so there's probably
0: always room to grow there. Well,
1: my Inklings book club, one mm-hmm. of my uh friends in that that I've co moderated that uh with for a while, our pact is we are stopping playing and are going to read the Silmarillion this summer.
0: Okay, so then, Doing a big, huh? then,
1: well, then I'll be much more legit.
2: Cody actually just got me that for Christmas, so awesome. I'd love to read that with you. Yes, I'm, I'm psyched. Let's do it. It's but- my understanding that. You you obviously know Tolkien's habit of sometimes when he goes into a descriptive sense and he'll have like Faramir or mostly Gandalf describe something or the context, the historical Middle-earth context, and it almost reads like a Wikipedia page where every proper noun, like if it was, if you were reading it on Wikipedia, it would have a blue hyperlink to yes. something else. <laughs> yes. And he's just referencing so many new things. Uh-huh. Uh, it's my understanding that that's pretty much all that the Silmarillion is. That's it's right. Just like the 6,000 years of context. Yep. And you've started it before, right?
1: Yeah. And- I don't know, I just feel like this time I will prevail mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> well, it's not that long, no, I mean, it's, it's like three hundred down though. yeah, it's about the size mm-hmm. of the 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 um the trilogy, right, but it's yeah, it's just a little
2: bit denser, uh-huh. like Cody was saying, yeah, I feel like you'd have to like like I know myself, I would get lost, and I'd eventually have to, like while I'm reading it set up like a cork board with red strings exactly. connecting different threads <laughs> and different like histories and like breaking it down by age and who's where doing mm-hmm. what and why Yep. so many different so many different like literally threads to pull.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, welcome back. Thank you. It's so good to have you. Great to be here. Um I'm excited to do this. So our format today we're pretty much going to do um we're going to do a quick like 3 minute recap see if we can get everything in 3 minute minutes okay. and feel free to jump in and add color wherever you feel okay. but we'll save that mostly for when we go a little bit more in depth in some of our favorite parts. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, so this book Again, we're talking two towers today. This book is broken up into two separate volumes, essentially book three and book four, um, as it lays in the book itself. And we pick up right at the beginning um, where we left off with uh, Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas, and then the two hobbits and Boromir having just been completely and totally taken for surprise by this group of orcs that had ambushed them along, as Cody and I very endearingly call, Procrastination River and Procrastination Beach. So do you remember
2: why we call it that?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. It's a great name.
2: We have problems. We know the orcs are coming. We don't know whether we're going to Mordor or to Gondor. We'll decide at the beachhead. Yep. There's an entire chapter of that exact <laughs> yeah. conversation. Like, mm-hmm. Well, where do we go?
0: I don't know. Do we have to decide yet? Nah, we're good. So the first part of the book is split up into the two perspectives of the hunters being Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, and then the next perspective being Merry and Pippin. And we're jumping back and forth chapter to chapter pretty much. Um, between the two perspectives. So it's Merry and Pippin have gotten captured by this group of orcs, and they're being taken at an astounding pace back to Isengard. While Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas have all decided after after they kind of do their own burial rite for Boromir, Mm -hmm. they send him down the river in this boat with all of his effects and all of the weapons of the orcs that he was able to slay before he died. They decide, we're not going to go after Frodo and Sam because Frodo knew what he was doing. This is his own journey now. We need to go save our friends who've been taken by orcs. So they are all gung ho, get after it. And so we have a few chapters where Aragorn, Gimli, Legolas are hunting down these just flying orcs who are just making tremendous, tremendous speed. So at one point, we meet the riders of Rohan because this chase brings us into uh, this great plain area where the riders kind of hold their domain. We find out, okay, well, The Riders of Rohan had attacked this orc party and now we don't really know what's going on with Merry and Pippin. And so we have this interesting, and this is such an interesting part to read for me, because we have the two perspectives going back and forth where Aragorn is actually trying to decipher what happened when they get to this battleground where all these dead orcs are now. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of reading these clues. And then we jump back in time, I believe, in the next chapter. And we see actually what happened. Mm -hmm. So we find out that Merry and Pippin, during the course of this battle, were able to escape their their captivity and they make their way into Fangorn Forest. At this point, Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas having kind of thought like, okay, well, the hobbits definitely got away, so you got to follow them into Fangorn. They're on high alert because there's this white wizard about in the shape of this old man that came up to them while they were camped out scared away their horses that they had just recently been given by the riders of Rohan. So they're kind of spooked at this point. Meanwhile, Merry and Pippin make their way into the forest, are just kind of walking along as if nothing had happened to them before. They're just like completely dandy (laughs) about walking through the woods. Meet Treebeard, who's this giant tree person called an Ent. He also goes by the name of Fangorn. After kind of discussing with them about how the forest is in disrepair, Um, they all decide, okay, we're going to get together for this Ent moot, get all the Ents together and decide what we're going to do about Saruman, who is just tearing up the forest and wreaking havoc across all of this country. At the same time, Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas make their way into the forest, searching for Merry and Pippin, and they get to a point where their kind of tracks end. And at this point, they are confronted by the same old man that they saw, or they thought they saw the night before who turns out to be Gandalf's back. (laughs) Yes. So Gandalf then, the reincarnated, now not Gandalf the White, but Gandalf Gandalf the Gray, now Gandalf the White, takes Aragorn, Gimli, Legolas, off to Rohan to meet Theoden, who is under this spell from Saruman. He's being manipulated by this really slimy character, Grima Wormtongue. We find out Theoden's son has died, and the army is kind of scattered across the land. Gandalf frees... Theoden from his spell, and Theoden is gung-ho about going to war with Saruman to get back at him, so they rally the troops, ride out. After they get out onto the open field, they realize, okay, all of our troops are scattered. We don't really have a better option than to go to Helm's Deep and hold up there and fight him in this fortress. Meanwhile, Merry, Pippin, Treebeard, and the rest of the Ents decide, okay, we need to destroy Saruman, so they march off to war on Isengard. At this point, multiple battles occur virtually at the same time. Gandalf, Aragorn, all of those That posse does their thing at Helm's Deep while Gandalf goes over, finds Treebeard, has him send help to Helm's Deep. Gandalf musters the rest of the troops, finds them, brings them in. Last minute save by Gandalf and the rest of the gang. Treebeard and the rest of the Ents, along with Merry and Pippin, destroy Isengard. All of our gang then meets up, eventually, in the newly flooded and destructed Isengard, where they try to get Saruman to come out of his keep. We can't do so. At the last second, Grima throws the... Grima Wormtongue, who had been back to Isengard, throws out the uh, Palantir, which is this orb that you can talk to people across long distances. uh, Pippin picks it up. Gandalf takes it. A bunch of nonsense ensues where Pippin looks at it again. Gandalf realizes now, okay, Saruman and Sauron, we're talking to each other using these objects. Says, Pippin, we need to get you out of here. Gandalf
2: peels out to Minas Tirith. Important to note, he peels out, says we have to go because uh, Pippin picked up the orb saw uh, Sauron Sauron saw a halfling assumes that's Frodo or the halfling that has the ring and it says okay I'm gonna go find you now yep and that's why they have to peel out to Minas Tirith
0: yep so Gandalf Pippin peel off to Minas Tirith the rest of the gang including all of Rohan Aragorn yada yada they go regroup back in Edoras and that's the end of book
2: three Cody book four picks up uh beginning with the taming of Smeagol uh Frodo and Sam having just decided to go to Mordor, having a very hard time traversing the awful terrain that separates the uh, gap of Rohan, essentially, and Mordor. Basically, this open country that is not really occupied by anyone or any being in particular because of its like wasteland quality. They're struggling to cross it, a couple close shaves. They are attacked in the night by this, by smeagol or Gollum, and they know this because they've been aware of his following them (laughs) since the mines of moria yeah even eric and he's a really slippery guy this is important even aragorn can't catch him they get him trying to find the ring he immediately breaks down sam throughout the book infinitely dubious of smeagol or Gollum, depending on what context and how threatening he is (laughs) uh wants to kill him frodo remembers what gandalf says about how bilbo took pity on him realizes that because of his station with the ring, Gollum's life is almost bound to him in a way. And that is pretty much the factor that allows Gollum to live throughout the remainder of this book. Whenever they think it's time, maybe if Gollum should either stop following them or even kill Gollum. Yeah, and that Frodo's ha- pity takes over and that, yeah. that grace that he shows is pretty much the only thing that keeps Gollum alive for right. the remainder of the book. They go into the Dead Marshes. The Dead Marshes are another wasteland area, however different than the rocky um, terrain that they've been on. This one is the site of a great battle thousands of years ago, um, and the preserved water that is over it has kept the bodies intact. And if you look into the marshes at certain points, you can see the white faces of the dead staring back at you. It's a very eerie chapter. We talk all the time on this podcast about how the duality of Tolkien can either describe the most beautiful situation or like almost like send a chill up your spine with it's, how gross It's rare write. that Tolkien's like, this is an okay land. Yes. <laughs> like, it's no, fine. <laughs> it was a nondescript area where yeah. nothing particularly happens. I mean, no, it's either like sort of, amazing or just kind of like, oh God, this would suck. It would, mm-hmm. It's awful. They, Gollum um, tells them that they'll be able to go to Mordor because he's been there before. And that's also kind of the deal why he's alive is because he's been to Mordor and can take them and allows them to finish their journey. So they make this devil's bargain with him. The first up is the Black Gate. They go to the Black Gate, and it's not a great idea. It's massive, crawling with orcs. The only time it opens is to let in or out foul individuals or groups of people. There's armies of men to the south that are coming in. There's orcs all over. And Frodo is like, well, we got to go there, right? And everyone's like, Sam and Gollum are like, no, it's super dangerous. And then they think there has to be a better way. Gollum offers another way, but they have to kind of go back around and go back into the um, country It'll just take longer. They decide it's either suicide mission to kind of rush the gate. So they they're kind of forced to go on this mm-hmm. secondary path with Gollum. When they do that, they end up uh, encountering some rangers from Gondor, the captain of which is Faramir. We learn that Faramir, in his interrogation of Frodo, because he doesn't know who these people are, he's I don't think he's ever seen hobbits before. So when you see this, you gotta kind of question him. Uh, we learn he's the brother of Boromir. He informs um uh, frodo and sam that boromir died and asked them if you know boromir how did he die there's a lot of kind of distrust that goes around with that he brings them to their um kind of outpost it's in a waterfall kind of cut out cave it's very beautiful again we were just in the dead marshes now we're in an open field that smells like sage and then all of a sudden we're in a beautiful waterfall the window on the west the window to the west um in this convert in the conversation we have Frodo learns to trust Faramir. Faramir is very similar to Boromir in stature, size, look, um, his sternness, but his demeanor is much different. Boromir was an absolute hothead, <laughs> to say the least. Very trigger happy, always the first to question. Meanwhile, Faramir is very pensive, very thoughtful. Mm-hmm. He's extremely diligent in how he communicates to Frodo, it takes long pauses to think about what he says before he actually makes decisions. And we learn that he doesn't know what the what is what he calls Ilsiodor's bane, the ring. He doesn't know what it is. He knows that it's a weapon and he knows Boromir went to find it, but he, without even knowing what it is, shows disdain for it. Doesn't want it. Says if he found it on the road with no master, he wouldn't even pick it up. He doesn't trust that people should actually engage in something that foul. Mm-hmm. This really endears Formir to the reader and to um, Frodo. So when it is revealed by a big boneheaded move by Samwise Gamgee, that it is the Ring of Power, the one fabled ring, it's, it's pretty good that we're able to see, in the words of Tolkien, Faramir's quality. Um, because he says, don't worry, I'm not going to try and take the ring from you. That night, we find that or Faramir wakes up uh, Frodo and by consequence Sam, and shows them that there's a trespasser in the pool. Uh, they don't know what it is, but they think it's this thing that, th- that has been following them. He's been described as a squirrel without a tail, <laughs> yeah. a frog, a kingfisher. It's definitely not a bird, <laughs> but he's diving in the sacred pool, which according to the laws of Gondor is just automatic death penalty. Mm-hmm. Really really strict from our guys in Gondor but rules are rules I guess and he has arrows set on Gollum and he could kill him right away but once again the pity overtakes Frodo he chooses not to kill him instead allowing Gollum to be captured and questioned by Faramir Faramir finds that talking to Gollum is like talking to a wall with really bad split personality disorder (laughs) and heavily counsels Frodo to either let him kill him or if you let him live don't engage with him anymore Really wise words from him. Faramir doesn't trust this thing. Pretty spot on analysis from Faramir. But Faramir allows them to eat, kind of recharge their batteries and sleep well, and restocks them with walking sticks before sending them off and gives them a year and a day of safe passage through Gondor. And anyone who harasses them um, Mm -hmm. is essentially going to be put to death on the orders of Captain Faramir. Very cool. We love Faramir in this book. And we will talk at length about how the movies just did him so dirty they, <laughs> the worst they really moment i in I, the film i didn't realize how awful it was until i read these books absolutely and just how cool from was yes. the movie it was it was upsetting
1: it is absolutely upsetting it was
2: really upsetting um so they go to the crossroads and now gollum is like really getting the second chance of life you kind of he almost said in you he's really focused on this one path we're going to go up this mountain and it's going to give us a secret way into uh, mordor and there aren't going to be any orcs there again sam's like I don't like it, but it's kind of our only choice. We go up there and they're on, it's called the stairs of Siroth, Sirath Ungol. And it oversees the tower of Sirath Ungol, which is the old tower of the moon. Now it's this orc stronghold. As they're climbing up, the doors open and a massive army of orcs led by the witch king, um, the head of the nine uh, ringwraiths. Um, And there's a moment where he pauses and kind of looks up in their direction. And Frodo very heavily feels the weight of the ring. The ring has been increasingly burdenous and heavy on him in these uh, few chapters and now it's the heaviest it's ever been he's so tempted to put it on but eventually he doesn't the moment passes and uh, the ring wraith carries on they get to this one area at the very top of the steps of Sirith Ungol and it's kind of this really dank cave the air is heavy it smells awful in there the air is so heavy that, there's, that Sam and Frodo are struggling to breathe and even speak to each other at this point they realize Gollum's gone not great uh, frodo remembers um the uh light that galadriel gave him and activates it and once he does he realizes that there is a massive primordial spider that is currently inhabiting this cave and that's not great because they don't know <laughs> because of just a pretty self-explanatory situation they try to run away from it get caught in cobwebs they try to fight it off frodo eventually gives the light to sam as he heads off in front of him but sam kind of trails behind sam is then grabbed from behind by gollum and gollum does the villain monologue where he's like this was my plan all along Shelob is an ancient spider who i like to bring orcs orcs orcs, orcs to yeah (laughs) and now i can say passage but now i'm bringing you in because you're a fat hobbit and i hate you sam goes into a flying i told you so rage and (laughs) smacks gollum really hard gollum flees he then charges um Uh, shelob who he sees has stung frodo and he assumes that frodo's dead the rage is now amplified he goes and tries to um attack uh shelob and uh he takes the star Mm -hmm. and it feels all that come out of him and engages Mm -hmm. it and like almost like speaks elvish and stuff pokes one of shelob's eyes she raises up to fall on him she falls on his sword basically impaling herself runs away she's obviously never been attacked like this before he's Sam sees Frodo doesn't see any immediate signs of life and is just like just so, so distraught. He thinks he failed. He thinks he failed his master. And then he realizes that he has to carry. in a crazy moment. He realizes that he has to carry on Frodo's mission and takes the ring from him. When he does this, he hears orcs kind of surrounding them and being like, what's all this commotion? And puts on the ring. Really crazy moment for the reader. Where, mm-hmm. And then Sam is immediately like just blown away. He has he's like, this is what it's like. This is so crazy. Kind of goes off and hides realizes that he can understand the orc language when he's wearing the ring and the orcs uh, basically look at him and he's like oh yeah he's still alive because Shelob only eats living things um huge for sam very cool <laughs> they take him away and be like all right we're gonna go take this kid back to um our really gross tower and do orc stuff to him you can only assume awful torture sam basically follows and is really good at following them and keeping quiet up until the point where they enter their tower lock the door behind him sam has a what am I going to do moment? And then the book ends and that's it.
0: So yeah, a little longer than three minutes. Well done though. Pretty, do you think we got everything there? Are we, missing, you guys did great. Are we missing stuff? stuff we're, there? we're missing detail stuff and characters yeah, but, that we've met. A but long yeah, way, good, but.
1: good plot analysis right there. Yeah.
0: Okay. So the way I like to see this book, it's in four phases, right? Both books are split into two things. The first one is the chase, right? There's this massive, just kind of frantic chase at the beginning of book three where Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas are trying to get these hobbits. Then when that goes, kind of branches off into a different thing, there's this whole other phase where it's like basically just the war in Rohan. Then going into book four, you have the first phase, which is just getting Sam, Gollum, and Frodo to Faramir. Yeah. Phase three, phase four, break off from Faramir and finish off that stage of the journey. Sound yeah. pretty good? Yeah. So this first phase, the first thing that I want to talk about is just kind of overall theme of the book, right? The two things that I really feel are just speaking, at least in book three, are and friendship is just Huge. fellowship fellowship continues up mm-hmm. through the whole thing. So there's the fellowship aspect that's still there. The other one, though, that we talked about at length, and I'd like to get into pretty in detail with you, is this just idea of nature versus industry. Mm. A, a Very important, especially in book three. Yep. So in book three, we meet Treebeard, and Treebeard. I'd just like to get your take on Treebeard. Just go off opinions, theories, everything.
1: Well, um, I am, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm gonna disappoint you a little bit. I'm a little less interested in Treebeard than some people. I don't know why, because I think he's super cool, and I and the people who love him, I think are you know really insightful people. Um he's he's called eldest later on so we know that he knows the story of the land better than anybody uh he has this very interesting relationship with elves this regard for them but also you know you get the sense that he doesn't he's different from elves um and he's one of these people that he's kind of Easy to underestimate, you know.
0: Yeah, uh, the, I mean, Saruman certainly did. <laughs>
1: yeah, the the and even the hobbits, you know, right. it starts to dawn on them what Treebeard could do if roused, mm-hmm. and and what the Ents could do if roused. So yeah, and he, what what are you thinking about
0: so, Treebeard? I, I, w- what Cody and I talked about a lot with this whole Treebeard section is, it's just Tolkien taking something that he loves so so much. Which is just nature, right? Yeah, and making it human. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why for Treebeard, I, I hear everything you're saying, and it does surprise me a little bit that you're not as high on Treebeard as some other people are. Um, I figured that you would be a little bit more kind of into him, but um, no. The it's it's this kind of weird dual thing where it's like Treebeard is all at once capable of fostering in these helpless little hobbits mm-hmm. tucking them into bed essentially yeah giving them life-saving ent draft mm-hmm. while at the same time totally capable of just wreaking havoc on this evil borderline genocidal wizard that is trying to just eliminate the world of men yeah um
1: and as you guys are alluding uh through industry,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. The
1: gears, the machines, the smokes, the fumes, and and it's great that Treebeard basically just unleashes a river,
2: right? Exactly on Isengard. There's yeah. a real purification metaphor yeah. of the the dammed up river washing out the fire and industry, allowing like the original growth of Isengard to return.
1: And one other thing to say, and this is um, the introduction to uh, a short story that Tolkien wrote called "Tree and Leaf," and he talks he talks about a a tree outside his window that, that he appreciated so much. Mm -hmm. And then for, for some ridiculous reason, it was just, you know, cut down. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're right. I mean, this is always on Tolkien's mind.
0: Right. And I mean, that's what I just like, besides it just being a great kind of fantasy character, having a tree man, right? like he could have done, he could have done anything else. And we could have
2: met another gang of elves, you know, he could have the, even done like a like in the hobbit with um Biorn. he could have done almost like a lorax type character like i'm the lorax i speak for the trees he could right. have just he could have made it a person mm-hmm. instead of anthropomorphizing the actual trees but the message actually comes so much better when it's like those were my friends you chopped down it hurts when you hit me with an axe like that's, yeah, it it mm-hmm. actually like it, it, the humanizing intention is a, amplified a lot more when the tree is the speaker as opposed to having a spokesman for the trees
0: yeah i mean something that i just love about love about these books is just the way that this world is living. Mm-hmm. It's a living breathing landscape.
1: I don't know about you guys but after my first read of Lord of the Rings, I was so much more aware of nature.
0: I certainly so I mean that comes and goes for me, but certainly after reading reading any kind of treebeard chapter, um especially when Merry and Pippin first meet him because mm-hmm. we just get a lot of just kind of rolling passages where he's just telling them about his history and the history of ents and the history of the forest and there's this ancient tone and just kind of like awe that's brought out of the passages where you can't help but look outside and just think to yourself like, why have I never seen that tree in my backyard before? Mm -hmm. Like why it it really, it it really does wake you up to that.
1: A couple of things too, you know, C.S. Lewis, um, his buddy did a lot with this kind of thing. You know, the Mm -hmm. the spirits of the trees uh, was a big thing for Lewis and you know, you were talking about nature and here's that quote about you know when Legolas hops on his horse and he said he's talking about the uh saddle and rein and he says i need them not and leaped lightly up and to their wonder Erod was tame and willing beneath him moving here and there with but a spoken word such was the elvish way with all good beasts mm mm-hmm. And, yeah, so this idea of harmony with nature and appreciation for it and and the thing too is the destruction of Eisengard tree roots can tear up the foundation of a house, yeah, yeah. it it is just sped up mm-hmm. in Eisengard, but they have that ability, right.
0: yeah, it talks about just this uncanny ability to just destroy rock, mm-hmm. like the trees were just able to put their hands on this wall and just tear it down like it was nothing,
3: yeah,
2: um I also like the idea that. Basically how Ents form is when a tree is old enough, it can become more lifelike or an Ent after being an actual like kind of how we see is like the Ent tree person can return to the natural tree state. And I like that token is basically like sometimes it's not desirable or even like preferable to be humanoid. It's Mm -hmm. not sometimes you don't want to be that. And these trees respect their original state so well that they're willing to just return to being a stationary, solitary tree in one place for the rest of their life.
1: Yeah. And of course, now we're all people who are, I mean, there've been a lot of people who know it for a long time, but trees protect us in so many ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, pff, oxygen, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, so that was just a, a huge theme for this book that I really wanted to touch on because it's such a, at least to me, it was such a big part of book three. Mm-hmm. Um, You don't see it as much in book four, uh, but just for like a good half of this, of, of two towers, it's like really beaten into you mm-hmm. <laughs> almost, almost. Yeah. Um, the second one in book three that I really think needs discussing is just resurrection. Yes. Um, I mean, y- you were talking about when we had you on the last time. You're saying that Tolkien doesn't like what were you saying? He doesn't like allegory. Right. Or, okay.
2: He came pretty close with Gandalf, right? That's true. He, he does a little bit of it with like the genealogy of Aragorn really paralleling the genealogy of Jesus in my brain. Right. That's, that's like the, fr- like that's this like the fr- Royal lineage. Yeah. lineage. Or like, true. And, and waiting for the return is yep. the big one. Oh, too. Yeah. yeah. But that's, that's the big one. But the other one, yeah. Is this like resurrection to become more powerful. I mean, it, the hand
0: of- it, it, like Gandalf says, I fought the Balrog from the lowest, you know, lowest dungeon to the highest peak. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, okay, so, Jesus went down into hell, and you know. Well,
1: and we'll see in in uh, Return of the King some even stronger mm-hmm. uh, connections to Jesus through Aragorn.
0: Right, right, yeah. But th- I mean, how does that strike you in this book? Just the return of Gandalf in general. What? How do you see him? If you do see him any differently, maybe as a character mm-hmm. going from Gandalf the White or Gandalf the Gray to Gandalf the White. Um, I mean, talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, I think you're. You just said it a little bit that. He is more powerful because, you know, he was willing to uh, stand on that bridge and defend his friends. And and I think just like Jesus, you know, people get confused with Jesus being divine and human that he knew for certain what was going to happen to him mm-hmm. when he reentered or and he entered Jerusalem and, and knew what the Romans were going to do to him, that he would know that he would rise from the dead. Well. Um, I think it's more, you know, faith is hope in things that we aren't completely certain about. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I don't think Jesus knew for certain what was going to happen. And I don't think Gandalf did either, but I think you're right to connect it to, to Jesus and, and to even, um, you know, question the idea of, is this now not an allegory? Um, the one thing I would respond, and, and I think I've said this before is that I think Tolkien took jesus and split him into three people Mm -hmm. so he's partly aragorn and he's partly gandalf and he's partly frodo
0: which Mm -hmm. and i'm glad you said that what bugs me about the movies other than the faramir thing is that i think you lose that with frodo you do Mm -hmm.
1: and actually when i say that the lowest point in the movie is faramir's uh it's it's actually frodo and sam Mm -hmm. in the part that cody just walked us through because frodo would never Ever think Sam would betray him? He yeah. would never take Gollum's side over over Sam. So those are the two low
2: moments in the movie oh, from yeah. my perspective. Right. um it, It's 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 and like we cannot when we'll talk about it when we get more to the talk about the movie. But it's just you know Peter Jackson essentially was like what makes a good book does not make a good movie. Yeah. and These are the creative liberties that he felt he needed to take. But book readers are obviously like, hey, right well,
1: man, here's mean? the other thing. I I've always found that Hollywood is uncomfortable with just really straight up good people.
2: Yeah,
0: 100%. Everyone has to be flawed.
1: Exactly. And the thing is there are people who are like fairmare in this world. There are people like that. Yeah. They're few and far between, but they exist. And it makes me mad that they can't allow him to just be straight up a good man.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only one that they have they have two. They, they it's pretty he pretty much allows Aragorn and Gandalf the yeah. freedom to to like maintain their like kind of roots and he doesn't even uh mess with the Aragorn thing where he's like where there's a, the whole weird Elrond is the prom dad who won't yeah. let his daughter go <laughs> right. with Aragorn. Like yeah. that's, that whole subplot is like, what, what are we doing? What? Yeah.
0: But okay, so Gandalf coming back, absolutely huge for the gang. Huge. It's and really mostly what Gandalf provides for for everybody, which is really lacking in the Frodo and Sam section of this book is just a sense of direction. Yeah. Gandalf doesn't hesitate ever. Like mm-hmm. he's one of these characters that is just like, we're doing this. That action. You're you're going there. I'm okay. going here. We're
2: going to fight this battle. We're going to win. And after, like, he's got this whole thing mapped out. Mm-hmm. He also allows the reader to have the thirty thousand foot view of the whole landscape. He's mm-hmm. got the entire chessboard. Meanwhile, Frodo and Sam, they're just the one pawn, just hoping they can make it to the very end with absolutely no context. They don't even know Boromir dies until like three hundred pages into the book.
1: Yeah,
0: but the first step in Gandalf's plan, once he meets up with the hunters, is. We need to go to Edoras, go to Rohan, and we need to see what's going on with Theoden. Yes. And there's so Cody and I love this portion of the book because there's this hilarious moment where Aragorn is very, very hesitant to like give up his sword at the gate. <laughs> it's so funny, which is something you miss in the movies too, because Aragorn doesn't have his like his sword. It doesn't you know? have Andrew
2: Hill until the it, third movie. Yeah.
0: Right. But <laughs> he's just like fighting with this guy about like letting him in and i don't know
2: it's hilarious but it's like a guy who's like going to a bar and the bouncer's like hey man no hats and he's like dude this is my hat he's yeah like, and just, i think d- just give it to me you can get it when you leave he's like don't even look at that <laughs>
1: well and the other thing too is this is you know kind of one of those and again it's a movie maker's uh appeal to uh, i don't know the machismo in many of us you know like ooh, yeah. let's look how you know, how many weapons are going to put up on this slab of, of rock or whatever, Yeah. yeah. but what
0: air going strapped.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and we all, you know, it's funny. It's, it's, it's comedy, but I was thinking this time when I reread it, how significant it is that the only needful thing yep. makes it in.
0: Right. Right. Being the staff. Yep. Exactly. So let's talk about that a little bit. This is one of the things that I felt the movie did perfectly. Yep. It did this interaction between Gandalf,
2: Theoden, and Wormtongue. It's
1: like an exorcism. Yeah, it is. It is. It, it is
2: straight up is an exorcism. Uh-huh. There's literally a almost demonic figure possessing the mind and soul and body of Theoden uh, of, a, of a necessary person. Yep. Yeah. So,
0: I mean, th- that's just another kind of nod to this newfound power. I think within Gandalf, where he's just saying, you know. It wasn't even a book ago yet that Gandalf had just been schooled by Saruman and held in his tower. And now Gandalf the White is coming back and it's just like, no, no, it's my time to shine now. Mm -hmm. And obviously there's not that kind of like bravado around it. But he's saying like, no, Saruman, get out. I'll deal with you later. I need this guy.
1: Yes. What's the line? You know, I didn't pass through fire and water to bandy words with a serving man until the (laughs) sun that goes down or whatever. It's just the best <laughs> quote ever.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He's just like, Grima, I don't have time for you. Uh-huh. I, I did know. not fight a Balrog. Yes. <laughs> in the deepest pit of the minds of Moria. Yeah. So loved that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that is, it's got to be in like the top five
0: moments of this book. It's yes. just this exorcism of Theoden. Followed up immediately. And this is another issue I had with the movie. Theoden was ready to go to war, mm-hmm. right? Right away. He got freed of this curse and just mustered the troops, right? right?
1: And, and, again, you love Theoden.
0: Love Theoden.
1: He, he is one of my favorite characters and it's partly because of just what you said. You realize that he had been possessed. And I mean, there's always, there's so much about free will in these books that nobody, nobody gets off just with no culpability. Right. Um, and I'm not saying that he didn't have a part to play in that, you know, cause mm-hmm. it seems, I think it's really strong in these that, Evil is so strong, but it still needs a way in. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so the fact that he's in this state means that he made some bad choices, but who he is in his essence comes out and you just love him. He's a brave man. He's loyal. He's great.
0: Absolutely. So I I think we'd be um, a little remiss if we didn't uh, mention the fact that there's, I think, one female character in this book and she doesn't have a lot to do here. One Right, yet. The one thing that, was that did stand out? We get right off the bat that she's kind of drawn to Aragorn, yeah, and it doesn't really go past that. We nope. we don't get any kind of relationship between the two besides, I think, one passage that was just like she was stunned by him, yeah, she's crushing. She's but crushing the
1: thing on. is, is that I love the way Tolkien describes her. He says there's a long list of of adjectives, but he he says daughter of kings, mm-hmm. and in other words it's the strength in her that is attracted to the strength in aragorn. Yeah. She she's like, here's a man worthy of me. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you I know I like that take. I yeah, buy that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's awesome.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. And and I think w- without seeing a lot of what she does, and again, in the movie she goes with them to helm's deep, not how it happens in the book. Yeah. What does happen in the book though is she's put in charge of edoras while everybody's away. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's enough to say like okay, this woman knows what she's doing. She's definitely responsible enough to take care of her people while the people are off at war. She's also
2: such an obvious choice that uh, Theoden didn't even like deliberate about it. Nope. Right now, who am I going to leave Adoras right. in charge? Of? He was just like, Eowyn, yeah, you're in charge? You got Amir- it? Of course you do. Amir- Eowyn like-
1: says the people all love her. So, right. yeah, and this is not the kind of people who would love an indecisive, weak person. No.
2: Absolutely. No, the, the people of Rohan are notoriously strong, Yeah, strong beliefs. Mm-hmm. So right. The fact that she was just like the obvious de facto, mm-hmm. like, Steward for eteros yeah, right.
0: Um, but that pretty much gets us through all of the kind of big characters, I think. Um, in book three, at least mm-hmm. meeting. I mean, Aemir, Aemir great. Um,
1: well cast in the movie.
0: Oh, I love him. Yeah, I love him, and he's got kind of a bromance going on with Aragorn big a little time. bit, which makes sense. Yep, it, of course it does. Um, but the, I mean, he, he's not super super essential as far as kind of moving plot along, right. and like his character in general is just like. Great guy, very noble. Mm-hmm. Loves a good cavalry bout. <laughs> but, yeah, but uh, besides that, like, I, I think we can move on a little bit more into into book four.
2: Yeah, uh, can I just put a pause? One more. Absolutely. Thing? I just want to um uh do one more shout out for um the connection between our characters and the natural world. Rohan, famous for its horses, and Gandalf's horses, shadow Um, we learned it's like when they when they were bringing in horses to break. There's this one all white horse that they just could not break. It was too powerful. And Gandalf is the only one who was able to break him and ride him. But it wasn't actually a breaking. It was a mutual understanding of their power because this horse, Shadowfax, is actually the lord of horses mm-hmm. and is a supernatural horse that can actually speak with Gandalf. And he's so and one of his powers is that at night when he first of all, he's faster than any horse alive. And also at night when he runs and he's hit by the moonlight, he turns invisible, which is just a really cool thing that Tolkien didn't need to put. But I like that every natural kind of beast has a leader. Treebeard. Is like like the, the Ent King. He's eldest. He's Fangorn, named after the forest. And I like that he kind of has these kind of individual beasts that are not like. There's obviously no like horse bureaucracy. There's no mm-hmm. like anything like that. Mm-hmm. But just the idea that there would be one above all else. Yeah, that, and they're all attracted to each other, and all of those characters kind of run into each other. I think it's very interesting.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. He does insert kind of like hierarchies mm-hmm. in pretty much everything. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So. Book three. Uh, that's that's pretty that's much book three. book three. Can
1: I just say one more thing about book three? <laughs> Absolutely. Um,
0: oh, and one thing that we didn't mention. I think a couple big things actually. If we can stay on book three for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. The voice of Saruman. I'd awesome. like to go over and then Pippin's kind of uh, whoopsie daisy moment. Yeah. So, but what were you gonna say?
1: Well, my favorite line uh, in uh, book three is in Helm's Deep when Aragorn is standing on the wall
3: mm-hmm. and
1: he says. I'm looking for the daylight right. and the, and the, uh, orcs are taunting him and they say, why, what good will it do you? And he says, uh, you know, the dawn is ever the hope of men. Mm-hmm. And there's another point where he's in the middle of the battle and he's talking, uh, to somebody. Um, I believe it's the, um, the man, Oh, I can't remember who he's talking to, but he says, isn't it true that, uh, that the Helms deep has never been taken when mm-hmm. defended and and he says, let us defend it and hope. Mm-hmm. And uh, once I did a, a study of these books where I was looking for the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. Mm. And there's so much love yeah. in these books. And most of the love comes out in friendship and fellowship right. and Sam's love for Frodo, especially. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of faith, like all this almost speaking in tongues where, you know, they're Grabbing onto elvish power, and the whole thing with the elves is kind of like the faith piece,
0: oh, yeah, there's a big moment for that for Sam yes, yes,
1: yes, and then Aragorn is the hopeful, mm-hmm. well, Sam is very hopeful in certain ways, too, but there's just so many moments where the beautiful virtue of hope comes through in Aragorn, and that's just a perfect example. Let right. us defend it and hope, you know, and it's it's sort of like life when you think about it, you know, put everything you've got into something and pray, you mm-hmm. know and and it's gonna go, you know, right, yeah,
0: right, so um. Yeah, I mean, that That pretty much takes us, we get to a, mo- a point where we're talking with Saruman face-to-face. Um, Gandalf and, and Saruman are kind of going back and forth. And it doesn't happen the way that it does in the movie, because Saruman famously gets impaled, I believe, in the extended edition. That might be in Return of the King. But, of the King. Well, the and that's because they're
1: King. not going to take the time to do the Shire thing at the end. Yeah.
0: Right, right. So... Saruman's just left up in the tower after this kind of crazy conversation, where we get again this moment that Gandalf is
2: just like, "I'm the guy now." Mm -hmm. So, because Saruman, his cloak of like every color and is just so dazzling to um, everyone, and he speaks in such a soothing and really just like like forked tongued way, where he's able to just like seduce you that everyone except Gandalf is like, I don't know. I kind of like what he has to say. And Gandalf has to kind of shake everyone and remind them, Hey, he's bad. Remember the whole Helm's Deep thing that we just did. That was him. And they're like, Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah,
1: And we were talking about how much fun Theoden is and his response to Saruman, uh, you know, we will have peace. And then he goes on that long rant about when you're hanging from your tower in a gibbet Mm -hmm. for the sport of your crows, Mm -hmm. you know, great. So amazing. Your voice has lost its charm.
0: Right. Exactly. (laughs) I love that. Um, but what we get from that moment is this pretty important ball (laughs) it's like bowling ball type thing comes flying out of the tower the palantir which is this ancient device used to communicate between people far distances yeah one of
1: the seven seeing stones
0: right Um, and Pippin has a moment where he's just So, I mean, seduced by this this thing that he goes and steals it from Gandalf while Gandalf is sleeping and looks at it. Um I don't think it could have been any other character other than Pippin to do that. Nope, perfect. I don't think there's any other person in these books that has that kind of just like
1: cheek.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's a
0: good good that he would
1: take it out from under Gandalf's arm. Right,
0: right. Yeah. I mean it's so it's so perfect that it's Pippin. Um I mean, even Mary wouldn't do that. Oh no. So I just I find that so funny. Well, and oh, what's, it it's fascinating oh, too
1: it how it it advances the plot because he doesn't say so much mm-hmm. that Sauron Sauron doesn't finish the interview. Right. Um and it's it's such a stroke of luck that uh that Sauron doesn't really know who mm-hmm. Pippin is and, and he um sends the Nazgul rather than um interrogating him right then and there. It saves them all.
2: Right. Yeah. And it also allows him once he like tries to track it, be like, oh, you're going to Gondor, ring bearer, like Hobbit. That's where I'm going to send the bulk of my forces, which is what allows Frodo and Sam to just maneuver in undetected because his attention is all on the West. Right. He's like, he's like, they were either going to come to me directly or they were going to go to Gondor and muster their strength. Gondor, it is, you guys are morons. I'm going to come and find you. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: But that pretty much wraps book three. I don't think I have anything else to say.
3: Nope.
0: Beautiful, beautiful section. Uh, book four, let's get into Smeagol a little bit because this is a new character to us just in the sense that unless you've read The Hobbit, you really haven't heard any dialogue from Smeagol before. Yeah. So it's it's an interesting look into somebody. This is the first time for me that you see the corruption of the ring on somebody that's actually had it before, yeah. right? We've seen it already with Boromir and we can see its effects on, you know, Galadriel shows Frodo a little bit of what she would be like if she had it. And Bilbo. And Bilbo, right. But besides besides those characters, I mean, Gollum is really unique just in the fact that he will go to the ends of the earth mm-hmm. to get this thing back. And I think it's a really, it's just such an interesting way of Tolkien without making the ring a person, he basically just gives you that through Gollum. Yep. Um, so also just another character that I think they kind of messed up in the movies a little bit. I, I don't see at any point in these chapters going through that Gollum has any kind of like, like he, he never completely flips. Do you know what I mean? Like there's there's moments where he kind of is just like, fighting that mm-hmm. inner monologue um or inner kind of dialogue i guess between his two sides but in the movies they make it a point to be like no this guy's good now and i don't think i ever really got that in the books so. mm. no
2: i know that it, to, you get you get the moment on the uh, steps of sirith angle ongle where he has like the like hmm maybe i you know these guys are good to me maybe like is the ring that important to me he kind of has that smeagol tendency Mm-hmm. that he obviously, like you said, struggles with in the books and stuff. And there's parts where he's talking to himself and he's like, like master trusts us. Mm-hmm. Like he has these lines where it is evident. And that moment in Sirith Ungol is the only point where you're like, huh, maybe he might be able to have a control of this. And then Sam is a dick to him. And he then yeah. goes back to being like, oh no, these guys suck. I'm trying to take the ring. Duh, to a- take them to sea the oh,
1: We're skipping ahead, but obviously that part is just so beautifully written.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh. Well, let's, let's, uh, l- Let's make a note of that. Let's get yeah. back to that. But first, I think what's what's really important, we already noted kind of just the horrors um, of just the landscape yeah. that we talked about. So that's a huge part of just this book is just really talking about how awful this journey is. Yes. Um, I mean, we're going through rocky land, the dead marshes, it's all terrible, right? And then we go in and we finally meet Faramir. Um, Faramir to me is maybe like he's gotta be in my top five favorite characters in these mm, books. Yes. We were watching the movie the other night and I was vocally mad.
1: <laughs> well you know the story of one of our friends who stood up in a theater and yelled at the screen.
0: Yep. During what? the
1: Faramir part.
0: Well he'll he'll remain nameless, I'll tell you once we cut
2: this off, but you know him too. Okay. Yes. Well once well the thing is like Faramir in the books is so deliberate. Mm-hmm. And they give him so much to say. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, I think he has like twenty five lines of dialogue. Yeah, it's like what? What does like what is like they? They gave him the one word for word like they, now time for Faramir, Captain of Gondor, to show his quality. But it's also completely out of context from when it was mm-hmm. said. He says that he repeats it to Sam sarcastically mm-hmm. in the books. In the movie, he almost almost like possessed by the ring when they he. They pack it. a whole lot of wrong into a whole, not do. a whole lot of time. Yeah, they really do. They take so much time in the movie to just completely. Like, just bastardize his character. Yep. But Faramir, Faramir, to me, just
0: kind of embodies everything that's good about our best characters. Yep. Where he's noble, he's brave, he's a damn good fighter, mm-hmm. he's loyal to his country, he loves, loves Gondor and wants to see the world of men succeed and live on. But then there's also what differentiates him, because if you heard just that description, you would have been like, okay, that's Boromir. That's pretty much Boromir. What differentiates him for me is this kindness and like loving warmth Mm -hmm. that Tolkien gives all of the characters that you really want to love. Mm -hmm. There's this passage where after Sam makes his big goof and tells Faramir at the dinner table that it's the ring of power that they're bringing to Mordor, Frodo practically passes out after having a little bit more conversation because he has no idea what to do. And Faramir, after assuring them that he's not going to do anything and tells them that he wants to help them on their way, picks up Frodo, catches him before he hits the ground, and goes and tucks him into bed. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just this it's this quality of characters in these books that it's like, how can you be the best at everything?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> like, one thing that I really like about Faramir, too, is like like you said, like Hollywood has to have a conflicted hero. There yeah. can never be, like, a, a, a level of purity that's in these books represented on screen. That just doesn't work. Quote-unquote work. But what I do like about Faramir in the books is that you can tell by the way he interrogates um Frodo that he was so he is so wounded by the death of Boromir. Yeah. He wanted Frodo to be a fraud so bad. Mm. He wanted Frodo to screw up in the interview when he's like interrogating him mm-hmm. in the woods and even back when they're in the cave. He you could tell by the way that he just kept pressing about Boromir. he wanted all he needed was just one slip-up, one pit of the story to not be right. He needed him to know either too much or not know enough. Mm-hmm. That all he needed was just that what he asked him like. What did he look like? What did he act like? How did he dress? What was like the signature piece of his attire? Oh, it was the horn. You, you're right again. Like you were his friend. Like what, like, what are all these things that happened? And then he goes, he goes, like, do you know that he died? And he goes, no. And then he's like, and actually it helps him because like, well, that actually makes sense. If like, if you said that you left at this time, then he probably died over here. Like he wanted Frodo to be wrong so bad so that he would have an excuse because he tells the story of finding Boromir's body on the boat and yeah. watching it float past him and how that obviously traumatized him. He wanted to find the person responsible. And he finally finds someone, and he just wants it to be Frodo's fault so bad, but he allows his like more intelligent side to be like he's telling the truth.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. It's
2: not his fault. I'm not going to make it his fault.
1: Yeah, I think I think that the lesson that I learned from Faramir is, um, you know, for Faramir, a war is a tool. It's not the end all, be all, right? Mm -hmm. And
0: there's a great passage from him on that. Yes. Oh my gosh.
1: And what? And the thing that that I think the lesson that we learn is he is living a virtuous, well-ordered life. So mm-hmm. the choices he makes, it, it so much of life is, are your priorities in the right place? Faramir's priorities are in the right place. And so when he is put to it, he's going to make the right decision. And, you know, this is one of these things. It's not about, it's, it's who, you've, who you are on the inside. You're forming your character. And then when unforeseen things happen, you handle them properly. That's mm-hmm. what Faramir is to me.
0: Yeah, I mean- Absolutely. And it's all that is so evident in the in this one passage. And I don't know if I'm gonna be able to find it, but I'll look too. I know it, what you're talking about. Where he's he's saying, I like, would I see don't, Gondor I would a beautiful see Gon- city. Yeah, but he said, I I don't want to fight the war for the sake of fighting the war. I'm right. a I'm a warrior because it needs to be done. Yep. Not because I want any kind of glory from it or anything like that. And that's another kind of huge difference between him and Boromir is that Boromir always felt like a little bit more of having this bravado to him that was kind of like no there's a glory to war mm-hmm. like i don't think faramir really shares that belief at all yeah oh, i mean yeah. it's just so 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 beautiful i love faramir i'm so mad that they screwed him up with the movie. Yeah. <laughs> it was so and that hard. part is so
1: beautiful too the the uh window on the west and that beautiful rain curtain which is a really important recurring theme the I mean, rain curtain yes. yeah yeah so, yeah it comes
0: up multiple times
1: mm-hmm. yeah I don't get to see waterfalls very often but uh, Tolkien <laughs> obviously loves them
0: yeah um so while you're looking for that yeah let's get to the part um where they're on the ledge they're going up to this tunnel and Frodo and Sam have both fallen asleep frodo is has fallen asleep on Sam's lap right and Gollum comes back after sneaking around and going up to Shelob's lair he's come back down and he has this moment where he kind of sees his former self in the sleeping frodo and he puts his hand on him yes it's a really really interesting part of the book I think it's just like kind of takes you off guard because there's this grace and beauty and humanity to gollum all of a sudden that hadn't previously been there um and i i just like was kind of blown away by it when i read it
1: i know it it's a there's a pathos to it if that's you know the right word um it's uh it really just evokes this intense sadness you know this lost opportunity because the redemption of gollum has been a theme running through the whole book from the beginning mm-hmm. when Gandalf says, you know, I don't believe he's fully gone. There right. is hope for Gollum yet. Right. And, and this was our chance, mm-hmm. this moment. And what you realize, I think more than anything is how lonely Gollum is. Yeah. And he, uh, he, there is this, but what's interesting is um, Tolkien makes a point of saying he's, he came down to them. So, you know, where he's been, he's been with Sheila Mm-hmm uh, he's been saying, yeah, that plan let's, let's do this. Yeah. That we talked about. So it's not like he's innocent at all, but you still, that, that lost opportunity is, is supposed to be very sad and it is.
0: Yeah. It's, it's really, really awful. Um, but, um, the, uh, the, the next kind of big thing that, at least for me that kind of went on is this use of the light in the tunnel. Oh, yeah. So talking about just, you know, we were talking about just this use of like this elvish power throughout the books and that being kind of that theme. Um, There are a couple times where that was just the saving grace for Frodo and Sam. Mm -hmm. In particular, um, Frodo holds it up first and it emits this great light and you're just kind of like, oh, thank God they have this, right? The more important time to me, well, actually following that, then they're using an elvish blade yes. to escape this tunnel, right? Mm-hmm. So another use of an elvish tool. And then lastly, when Sam is about to fight Shelob for the last time, after Frodo had already been stung, he has the light on him as well. He holds it up and he just starts reciting this elvish song that he doesn't even know the words to.
1: Right. It's it's kind of like people speaking in tongues.
0: Absolutely is. Yeah. So I, I don't know. What do you What do you make of... What What is Tolkien trying to say here? Like,
1: Well, one of the things, and I think to- it's interesting how careful Tolkien is when you're utilizing one of these tools and especially this vial of Galadriel, he'll say, as Sam's hope waxed. Mm. So in other words, these tools are not magical in the sense that their agency depends on the choice of the user. Of the person wielding it. Right. So, again, it's this amazing interplay between free will mm-hmm. and all the help you're going to get when you, you know, it's like uh, even in the um, the part where they're on the uh, back way up when they're trying to get through the um, the rocky part before mm-hmm. the marshes.
0: And they use the rope.
1: And they use the rope. Yeah. And Sam Sam says... Galadriel mm-hmm. and he yanks it and it comes loose. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's it's like uh it's a really inter- interesting interplay between our choices and and the help that's available to us when we are kind of willing to ask for it, is how I see it.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. That just reminded me of kind of like a like a theme almost in Harry Potter too. Oh yeah. (laughs) You know, there are
1: so many commonalities.
2: I I say in the (laughs) podcast all the time, I love a magical tool, especially in fantasy stories where the context of the story even like allows it to exist in the first place where a lot of sometimes, sometimes people are like, oh, that's just like a plot device. I really fight back against that, especially because the light in this chapter where they're using it against a spider was given to them in the middle of the first book. We haven't even like thought about those gifts in a long time. You think about, obviously the cape that they use to disguise themselves sometimes or just like they use the brooch to track um marion pippin Mm -hmm. when they're taken by the Urukai. there's things like that but every once in a while you're like oh they were given very serious gifts by people that mean a lot to them yeah and that's another thing too is like like that part in lothlorian was very important to all the characters and so it only makes sense that the gifts given to them would be of equal importance well
1: and that's one of my favorite lines in in the whole series where uh aragorn says not idly do the leaves Jesus of Lorien fall, fall yeah. right
2: i found the quote by the way that you're well
1: done to.
2: uh for myself said faramir i would see the white tree and flower again in the courts of the kings and the silver crown return and ministereth in peace minis Anor again as of old full of light high and fair beautiful as a queen among her queens not a mistress of many slaves Nay, not even a kind mistress of willing slaves. War must be, while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend, the city of the men of Numenor. And I would have her loved for her memory, her ancestry, her beauty, and her present wisdom, not feared save as men may fear the dignity of a man, old and wise.
1: Yeah, it's awesome.
2: Gorgeous. <laughs> Um yeah and then i i
0: think i mean the only other thing that i think is really on my mind right now is um just the strength of sam at the end of this book. Yes. So sam obviously has this crazy crazy fight with shelob ends up kind of abandoning the body of frodo cuz he has to. I'm not faulting him for that. Maybe abandoning isn't the right word. He's soldiering on. Yeah. And just the absolute loyalty he has yes he doesn't he has the ring at this point like he doesn't need to go back for frodo necessarily but his character the person that he is demands that that happen yes is that
1: the line when he thinks frodo's dead and he says don't go where i can't follow oh so beautiful
0: yeah that 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 was a tough one for me Mm -hmm. (laughs) um yeah, so I think, I mean, that really wraps up, at least for me. Cody, I don't know what you're feeling. Um, any other kind of big thematic things that you want to talk about in this book? Mom, anything on you?
2: A big thing that I always notice is um, Tolkien's very deliberate um, change of pace from book three to book four. Yes. We are at, we talk about it all the time, book three is almost breakneck in, yes. its, in its pace. In kind how, of
1: swashbuckling.
2: Yeah, extremely swashbuckling. It's a great, really, really good way to put it, as opposed to the really... Um, Uh, pensive and methodical way that the hobbits and Gollum have to just really just slog slog through the wilderness and through the wastelands and they meet people along the way but in the book three we're meeting so many people and we're learning so much and then in book four we meet one new person and then obviously again and a couple other people you know there's like a guy named Amdor who's like like the friend of whoever else is in there's there's characters that you meet but the person that you meet is Faramir and he gives you a context of what it is you're fighting for. You know, he, he has that whole speech, that, I, that paragraph that I read. A way to boil that down is to be like, you don't fight for the fight, you fight so that you can go home. Yeah. And that's what you really want. And up until now, we've obviously had Boromir be like, Gondor's awesome, Minotaur's great, that's where we should bring the ring. That's kind of much the end of it. And even mm-hmm. though we know that Aragorn is the rightful heir to the throne of Gondor, he doesn't even talk about it that much. We know a lot about the capital W world of men. And we know about, them as kind of like a meta sense but we don't really get anyone who's like yeah this is why I'm fighting for Gondor I love it so much and it actually gives you a set of stakes for the battles to come that we haven't gotten yet and that is from like a very slow really day-to-day pace as opposed to like and then our heroes hopped on their horses and they absolutely burned across the gap of Rohan to meet at Edoras and they then Gandalf was hauling all over the country to assemble a rescue force for Helm's Deep and it's just there's so much going on and you're having to memorize more locations. And in the second book, book four, you have to kind of identify feelings and motivations in a a much more uh, intimate sense.
1: Well, and like what I was talking about, about the um, three aspects of Jesus that uh, Frodo's the suffering servant, you know, and the slog. uh, I think you're so right. The contrast between the two uh, book three and book four. And we have to remember that ultimately it is down to Frodo. Mm-hmm. And all this other stuff, as we've said, is really primarily a distraction mm-hmm. uh, to get Sauron's mind off his gate and, and what's going on inside his fences. So, huge, a huge idea because most of us are not living these swashbuckling lives, right? Right. right. Uh, the way we make a difference in this world is faithfulness in the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a great theme.
2: Yeah, like Aragorn can win as many battles as he wants, but it doesn't matter if if Frodo doesn't make it. Exactly, it literally does not matter. That's right.
0: Right. Okay. So real quick, let's just go over some of the other things from the movie that aren't to our fancy. Oh, you you have a list, don't you, Paul? <laughs> I I do. I I don't know that we need to go into all of that right now. There's just a, a couple big ones. So we talked about Faramir already. That's mm-hmm. that's really the big one. That's really bad. Okay. Faramir. The second one, we also already kind of got that into whole a little bit. deal
1: with the Limbus and the basically... Yeah.
0: Frodo abandoning Sam on the yeah, steps. Yeah, never happen. Which is like, which, which actually looks like the emotional isn't climax of in Two of Towers. Right. The movie. That is actually in Return of the King. So that's the difference, is that in Two Towers, we get Shelob already. They don't do that in Two Towers, the movie. They wait till Return of the King to do yes. that. Yes. So a little bit of just order differences. Along with that, we don't get just the way the book is broken out into the two different stories, book three versus book four in the movie they're doing them simultaneously. Mm. It's not like they're splitting them out equal mm-hmm. equally like that. Um the the thing that I was going to say though, which we talked about a, a little bit already, was the relationship just in general between Frodo and Sam. I think they get it all wrong. Yep. There's this weird tension between the two of them yep. throughout the whole movie which it just makes me so mad. Um mm-hmm. it it just it's it doesn't read like that in the book. There's nothing in there to suggest this other than the kind of occasional what Sam getting mad about Gollum and Frodo just being like we don't really have a better option. But it's never angry. It's not it's not like that. Can I just read? Yeah.
1: No onslaught more fierce was ever seen in the savage world of beasts, where <laughs> some desperate small creature armed with little teeth alone will spring upon a tower of horn and hide that stands above its fallen mate. Mm-hmm. That is how Tolkien is talking about Sam's love for Frodo. Mm-hmm. It, he's he so you're exactly right.
0: I mean, it, it just makes me so mad watching that movie. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So, 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 there's, so there's, blah, there's that. Um. Besides that, the other thing that I think the movie did really wrong was it introduces this weird, like Cody was saying, this weird like prom dad thing
2: with Elrond and Arwen. Oh, yeah. So yeah, like he's like, he's like, you can't marry him. And she's like, I really want to. And he's like, he's going to die before you. And she's like. Maybe and then it's like what, what are we what, why are we doing this? So
1: I want to ask you and I, this is gonna I'm full transparency here. Okay. Not only is there the Silmarillion, but there's the Appendices. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And some people I haven't really mined the Appendices as as I would like to eventually, but some of that subplot, let's it, just kind of put a little. They might be getting a little bit of that from the Appendices. Okay. I don't like it, Cody. I totally agree. I find it completely annoying. But um, it might be there.
0: What's more important to me, I. I I totally understand if Elrond is going to be saying that to Arwen, it makes sense. Like it's, it, it follows, right? Like your dad's going to want the best for your daughter. And if that means going and joining the rest of her people to live in immortality across the sea, fine. The thing that bugged me most actually was just this insertion of Eowyn as being this like third
2: corner of a love triangle. Yeah. That's
1: very annoying.
2: So I'm like, Especially when it actually serves the character better to give her less to do, which is actually that's almost you think that might be like counterproductive. Especially because in the books, Aowen's like the only female character.
1: Yeah, and and actually eowyn I mean, it it does come out that that eowyn does want to marry Aragorn,
0: right? Yeah, but they
1: way overdo it in the movie.
0: It's overdone. Oh, totally. Okay, so there's that. The other couple things I'd mentioned this before. Faeidin, not really sure about going to war originally in the that's in the movie in the book. Totally down right off the bat. The other character that's like that is Treebeard in the movie. Merry and Pippin, Pippin specifically, essentially has to trick Treebeard yes. into going to the edge of the forest. Yes. In the book, Treebeard's well aware of all of this. Right. He totally knows everything that's going on. Yep. And so, yeah, yep. the Ent moot does take a little while, takes a, a little bit for them to decide what they want to do. But there's never this decision that the Ents are going to stay out of the war. Mm-hmm. They were like, okay, yeah, this Saruman guy needs to be stopped and I don't need a hobbit to trick me to go to the edge of the forest to make up my mind about that. Yeah. That bugged me a lot too. Mm-hmm. Besides that, the movies do such a
2: great job. Of There's just, so
1: much. Uh, like Helm's Deep. How can you even imagine all of that in your mind?
2: Well, that's the other thing is that Peter Jackson will absolutely just like borderline slander a character with just like how much like Faramir, like for every Faramir, like, yeah. re- like really like, like almost like just so frustrating having to watch that. There's something like the location choice, the costume. Right. The um knowing when to use real dialogue yes. from the book. There's like casting choices. Mm-hmm. There's like like all of the set design. It's it looks so much like how you face like all these dramatic, beautiful landscapes. Like he picked New Zealand. It's yes. so simultaneously like you recognize all the features, but like how are they all together at the same time in such a small area? That's what Middle Earth is. Yes. Like yeah.
1: that horse ride in the flight to into- Edoras, yeah. Go- and into Gondor. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And yeah. which is going to be in the next book but still or or even these fun little additions like you're talking about like when Gimli blows the horn of Helm's yep. Deep. Yeah. That is not in the book. That's straight up fun. Yeah,
2: yeah. that's yeah. Like all these there, there are choices like like the um there's the reference that there's the wargs that fight for the orcs in Helm's Deep. They don't in the movie, but you get this separate battle in the plains and there is reference to the writers of Rohan clashing with um wargs in the open plains.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We don't see it in the book. There's no like like real time description of it, we get it in the movie, and it's and this great battle a scene cool that's super scene. fun yeah. and captivating mm-hmm. and really gruesome. And it's 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 so. But does
0: Aragorn fall off a cliff? No, in the book, no, he doesn't. Right, that doesn't happen. Do elves show up to Helm's Deep in the book? No, they don't. But like,
2: yeah, Haldir is most certainly still in Lothlorien, well alive. Yeah, to mm-hmm. all we know.
0: Yep. So it, there's just little things that I can kind of just be like, okay. Fine.
1: But then it's also like that great line that uh, Frodo has about you know, Elron told me that on this journey, I would have help unlooked for. And, uh, you know, and I, I think that's one of the best uh messages of the whole book is venture out, take that step out in faith. You will have help that you didn't think yeah. was going to come to you. And that, so that's how I kind of excused what you just mentioned about the elves showing up. I'm like, well, sure. but I mean,
2: again, I, you know, but we, it makes, but it, like I said earlier in the podcast, it makes a good movie. Yeah. It like does. The elements that would make, that would because, again, like even in the book, Helms Deep is like three or four pages. Yeah, it's not like it's not what was until very recently the longest cinematic battle in the history of movies or television. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, the the one thing that I will say, though, and, and you brought this up that Peter Jackson will throw in dialogue and so much of the time it is perfect. It is. And <clears throat> a lot of times it works outside of the original context yep. that it was within the book. Mm-hmm. There are other times that it just makes me mad. Mm-hmm. It's like you're bastardizing content by using it here. You'd mentioned that Faramir says, like, now's the time for Faramir of, you know, to show, his quality. Of to show right. his quality. There's another moment in this where Sam has this long monologue where he's talking about, like, it's our duty. Like It's taking bits and pieces of this portion of the book where Sam is talking about what it's like to be the character yep, in the Yep, It's stories, one of my favorite parts in the story. When they're on you, the stairs. Yep. And it made me mad watching the movie because they use bits and pieces of that in this monologue Sam gives to Frodo and Gollum in
2: Osgiliath. Like, they, what are you doing? Frodo and Sam
1: never go <laughs> no. to there's Osgiliath. An,
2: there's an entire part where a ring wraith almost captures yes. Frodo. Frodo in Osgiliath is a complete manufacturer. It is of like directly out of Peter Jackson's brain. Yeah.
1: But you know, you mentioning that it's funny how at the very beginning, uh, the three hunters say, we will make this a chase that will go into the stories. And then at the end, Sam has this epiphany. We're in the same story. story." And, and I love that because it's true.
3: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's true of our lives too. We're part of a story and it's unfolding. Very cool.
0: I think that's a great place to end. All right. Thank you so much for coming on, Mom. Thank you
1: for having me. I'm I am excited. Doing this. I'm
0: excited to do our next one, too. Oh, I know. It's going to be so much fun. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to be, like, in the weeds oh, in, in Return of I'll the King. I'll be knee-deep in, Re-
2: <laughs> in Return of the King.
0: I'm so psyched. All right. A real quick question before before you go. If you could rank your kind of, like, top, your favorites of these books, what, what do you think it would be? I suspect this one is probably your least favorite if you had to choose. Uh,
1: probably because just like most trilogies, it's that thing that connects one and three
2: right mm-hmm. not that it's bad it's just oh no yeah
1: it's wonderful
2: yeah uh one question that i'll have before we go what is your favorite part of the movie two towers we did spend a lot of time talking about how there's big differences but also that there's a lot of good parts what's your favorite part of the movie that it, it doesn't even have to be like something from the book it can be a change okay. a positive change but your, what, if, if you do have one favorite part of the movie
1: huh you know um I'm going to ask if we could defer that, and I'll tell you why. Um, I've held the movies at arm's length over these years. I've only watched them a couple of times, mm-hmm. and the last time quite a while ago. So it's not even that fresh. I okay. remember the things that make me mad better. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I don't remember well something that I, that I really love. But like I'll think I about a- it. I
0: feel like I can answer that for you. What do you think it is? It's the releasing of Thaden.
1: Yeah. No, that's fair. I think you're right. Low. I think they nailed that. Yeah, yeah, that probably is it. Thank yeah. you.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: All right, thanks so much. All right, you're welcome. We'll Thank see you, guys. Next time. All right, bye. This has been the Bibliotakes podcast. i will see you guys soon.